This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Esiason. Today's show is the beginning of a new series on the state of health focused on antimicrobial resistance. Just a couple of weeks ago, I co-authored an opinion piece with my friend and fellow patient advocate, Emma D'Agostino in The Hill, about the silent antibiotic crisis that is quickly becoming a big problem across the globe. Over the next couple of weeks, you'll hear from patients, lawmakers, and experts hoping to put an end to the crisis before it even begins. Today, Emma joins me on the state of health talk about antibiotics, our opinion piece, and why humanity relies on the same antibiotics today as we did in the 1960s. She has a PhD in biochemistry from Emory University, lives with cystic fibrosis, and is passionate about using her scientific training to educate patients about the science behind CF, new therapies and development, and using her experience as a patient to educate the scientific community about the importance of using the patient voice in the research process. Let's talk about the state of antibiotic resistance. All right, Emma, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So this is kind of a cool uh, podcast because I think I'm going to interview both of us um, simply because we co-wrote a opinion piece in The Hill, uh, sort of in the middle of August. New bipartisan legislation can encourage needed antibiotic development by Gunnar Esiason and Emma D'Agostino. That's us. So we are here talking about that today in the podcast. Um, but first, I want our listeners to know who you are. Who is Emma? Where you come from? And why are you so interested in this topic? So my name is Emma D'Agostino, and I'm uh, really proud that you pronounce that so well. Um, I am a uh, PhD, so I got my PhD in biochemistry, and I've always had an interest in antibiotic resistance. Um, my PhD was uh, not focused in antibiotic resistance, but I did some work in antibiotic resistance early in my PhD, and I always uh, went to every talk I could in antibiotic resistance. I stayed in um, labs that were kind of adjacent to it, uh, and both of us also have a vested interest in antibiotic resistance because we have cystic fibrosis and have grown up relying on antibiotics to survive. Uh, so it's an area that I have some expertise in and also, you know, I'm very personally vested in. So you have the PhD that already puts you about 10 steps ahead of me in my school. <laughs> um, so I will <laughs> attempt to do my best on today's show. Um, why, why should people care about antibiotics? And, uh, you know, for me, it's like a painfully obvious question to ask, but I, I want to hear you answer it. And then I think I'll give my opinion, but uh, I am uh, I am invested in hearing your uh, your thoughts on the on, on the topic. Yeah, it feels very obvious to those of us that use them all the time, but a lot of people don't, or you know, think that they are really easy to get. Right. So, um, 
antibiotics are drugs that you know we rely on to survive and they really didn't exist until fairly recently in our history um i think a lot of us know about penicillin is kind of famously the first antibiotic um but before antibiotics if you had a simple infection you were quite likely to just die today if you get strep throat or you know you have a cut and you get a skin infection or you get pneumonia um you can just go to the doctor and you get antibiotics and you take them for your 10 days or your two weeks and then that's done um and i think a lot of people have heard you know it's very important to take your full course of antibiotics but maybe you don't fully understand why exactly that's important uh but you should care about antibiotics because we really rely on them globally to survive as a species um and without antibiotics things like strep throat pneumonia um and things that are a little less common in the us uh like tuberculosis would become really devastating health threats and that's actually already happening with things like tuberculosis so what can happen over time is as we give the same antibiotics over and over again uh bacteria you know don't want to be killed um i won't make them sentient beings but bacteria over time um evolve just like we're seeing happen with the coronavirus um evolving these new variants bacteria do the same thing and they learn to kind of outsmart the drugs that we give them and the drugs that we give can stop working. So um, the infections that we've been able to treat with the antibiotics that we have, uh, the antibiotics can stop working. And if we get to a point where the antibiotics that we have in our kind of stock uh, don't work anymore, you might go to the doctor with strep throat and we might not have pills to give you or you might have to go to the hospital and get a higher level of care to get treated for something that today we view as very simple. So you bring up the, the tuberculosis example. I mean, like you hear the word tuberculosis and your mind goes to like worst possible scenario you can imagine. Um, that may or may not be the case. You know, there are some drugs that do kind of treat some antibiotics that are able to treat tuberculosis or at least treat it. Um, actually, believe it or not, uh, 2019, right before the pandemic, sort of like the winter, we got a new, like a, like an all health bulletin on campus, you know, right after I started business school, saying there was a student on campus who was confirmed to have tuberculosis and they were quarantining and there was, like a, there was a full fledged health alert. And I remember reading my email being like, oh my God, this, I can't believe this is happening. There's tuberculosis on campus. Then of course, a few weeks later, coronavirus comes to campus. So uh, kind of a, a funny little uh, twist there, but the topic isn't, it certainly isn't so funny because you're talking about an interesting uh, issue with a very, with a particular class of drugs that we all rely on that sort of wanes in efficacy over its time, right? So every time it's used, you know, based on this evolutionary, you know, I guess, talking point that you're using, the drug is going to get less and less effective with every time it's dosed against a, a sort of type of bacteria that's unable to kill. Um, and I think that's what's so concerning and certainly what pushed us to write this article, uh, because antibiotics prop up so many different parts of our lives beyond when we need, you know, treatment for strep throat or a cut. Like any one of our friends who's ever had a transplant relies on antibiotics right after surgery. Anyone who's had a massive surgery relies on antibiotics and recovery, Livestock and agriculture relies on antibiotics to some extent, although some, you know, some critics may say that, you know, we're overusing antibiotics in that, in that, in that agricultural world. 
So, you know, I think it's, they're, they're sort of around us, whether or not we know they're there. You know, I think most people just think of antibiotics as, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm not feeling too great. I've got a scrape. I, you know, I've got a rash. I need to go get treated or I've got strep throat or, you know, I can remember being a kid and being in any number of situations where I need to get, you know, azithromycin for 10 days or something like that. Um, so they're there, they're in front of us, they're around us and they're amongst us. Um, but you and I have a very unique world and interaction with antibiotics, right? The ones, the antibiotics that you and I use to treat the infections in our lungs are a lot more potent than the ones that people are using for everyday cuts and bruises. You know, why do you and I have such a tough, you know, tough life with antibiotics? Why do we have tough love with them? And what makes the problem so unique to CF, but what also is unique? That's a big question. So let's just go through it one piece at a time. <laughs> yeah. So what is really different with our experience in CF is, um, you know, I, I think a lot of our listeners are probably at least passively familiar with CF, but um, what happens in CF is our lungs are kind of uniquely hospitable to bacteria, right? So um, I don't know how old you were when you first got uh, your first like permanent lung infection, but what tends to happen in CF is we get permanently infected with bacteria. So when I was two, I got infected with the Pseudomonas bacteria and it's still there. It's been there for 25 years. I expect it to be there for the rest of my life. And it's not always causing trouble. Um, you know, right now it's relatively dormant. I don't experience a lot of symptoms on a day-to-day basis, but it's very much still there. And what that means is that if I get a cold or if I'm overtired, um, if there's an opportunity for it to kind of rear its head, it absolutely will do so. And then it will cause more symptoms. It will cause me to feel sick. Um, And if that happens, you have to treat it. Um, You know, if if we don't treat our kind of flare-ups, our exacerbations of that chronic infection, we will get sicker, we will lose lung function, and that's what ultimately um, tends to kill people with CF. So there's not an option to not use antibiotics. Um, We have to use them. And so I've been regularly using antibiotics to treat the same infection when I, since I was two. Uh, And what that also means is that my pseudomonas bacteria has been learning how to avoid dying uh, from antibiotics for 25 years. Um, And it's learned how to avoid dying from a lot of antibiotics. It's become resistant to most antibiotics that we have as a society to kill pseudomonas. Um, I am down to, I think, three antibiotics that exist that could kill pseudomonas. Um, And just to say healthy, for, for me personally, I regularly have to take antibiotics or I will get sick. So I have to take antibiotics that I inhale every other month or I will get sick. I can't not take them. Um, And if I do get sick on top of that, then I need even more powerful antibiotics that I take by IV. So that's fairly representative of the experience of a CF patient where we would love to not kind of dip into the uh, antibiotic arsenal, but if we don't, we will die. Um, And what happens over time in CF is we get more and more resistant bacteria and then we can run out of options and that's what ultimately really can kill us. So I don't know when you got your first bacteria and, and what your experience. Yeah, no, I, it, 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 
it certainly is representative of the CF experience. It's definitely representative of mine. Um, you know, very similar. I was diagnosed with CF when I was two years old, and it was because I was dealing with these recurrent infections that just wouldn't go away. Um, so it's likely that I was uh, infected prior to my diagnosis. Um, but in like, you know, the, the, the living memory that I have, of course, you don't remember those early days. You know, I remember getting thick lines as young as, you know, five, six, seven years old and doing intravenous an antibiotics since then. You know, I think you, you, you bring up an interesting point that like it just, it interacts very uniquely with people who see it. They can, they can kind of live with it. They, um, you know, they can treat it, you know, chronically, you know, when I say they, I really mean we, um, and, and I, I think that's different than, you know, the general population, right? You know, I think, you know, you, you often hear about sometimes on the news, people developing, you know, a skin infection because they were hiking and then they, you know, they're in the hospital and they're, they're dead because it was just so aggressive, right? It's almost like there's a middle ground between the, these infections that people deal with and there's just such a wide range of them. And I think that's what's so hard um, to sort of sound the alarm about this antibiotic resistance issue. Like it feels like a passive issue, right? Like it's just one that's sort of festering underneath the water. It's not like a big sexy issue that is permeating throughout like, you know, every single person's lives. They still have this reliance. They can go get a drug that they need and they hope that it will work or they know that it will work because they've had a previous good experience with it. You know, I'll tell a quick anecdote. When I first started dating Darcy, um, you know, and she knew that I had cystic fibrosis and she's a trained, you know, physical therapist, my wife, who is now my wife. Um, you know, we were about to go to sleep one night and I was on IVs and I had like a panic attack because I thought I was having an allergic reaction to a drug that I was using, um, through that IV. And I, the reason I had a panic attack is because I had an itchy butt. So it's kind of like a little bit of a funny story. Like I just couldn't stop itching my butt and, um, my backside and, uh, you know, with that knowledge, I was, you know, I realized that my, my the number of antibiotics that I could use to treat my pseudomonas infection was dwindling. And the thought of losing another one to not resistance, but an allergy was like an unfathomable thought. And it was just something that drove me to like, you know, be panicked for hours and hours and hours and prevent me from going to sleep. Of course, it turned out that I, you know, had a mosquito bite or something. And that was, you know, that was, you know, creating the, the, the injury, but it's definitely the sense of urgency that I felt is something that I certainly don't sense across the general population when we talk about this issue, <clears throat> right? You know, no one is, you know, staying awake at night thinking, oh my God, how many antibiotics do I have left? Yet here you are saying, you know, well, I think I only have two or three remaining. So there is a, um, you know, uh, definitely a, a, like a weird juxtaposition that exists between people who really need them and people who just assume that they are just going to be there forever. Um, and that's kind of, I think, what our, what we were striking the balance between in our, in our, our article that we wrote in the Hill, right? We have to sort of sound the alarm, but of course, no one wants to be sounding the alarm about a public health crisis, in the middle of a public health crisis that's already sort of going out of, uh, you know, out of popularity and sort of is, uh, becoming overly politicized in so many ways, right? It's, it's a weird position for us to take, and there we were. But I want to ask you, in that same kind of vein, in that same kind of line of thinking, you mentioned earlier in the, in the show that you worked in an antibiotic lab, or you worked in a lab where antibiotic resistance was sort of being looked at. Did you get a, a sense in the academic world 
that there is like a big existential issue, you know, permeating through the uh, the antibiotic world. And we'll get to the market dis- dysfunction in a second and, and talk about how we think it can get fixed. But did you sense that there was this issue, you know, was alive and well inside the world of academia? Oh, yeah. So so I worked in or, or touched uh, w- touch base with or, or knew a, a couple different labs that worked in antibiotic resistance during my time in academia. And everybody knows that this is an incoming crisis. It's very much acknowledged in academia. We all know that it's going to hit. Um, funding is really challenging in academia. It's, it's not necessarily really prioritized by the National Institutes of Health, which is the main funding body for academic science. But also, you know, the NIH just can't fund every good project that comes through. Um, but antibiotic resistance, I would say, isn't one of the like sexy topics for the NIH. So um, the first lab that I worked in had an antibiotic resistance arm of research, and that was actually one of the reasons I joined the lab, and they had to close up shop because they just couldn't get it through. Um, so even though we knew that it was a crisis, there, the money just wasn't there. Um, I then spent time in another lab where they're, a huge part of their work is antibiotic resistance. That's most of what they do. And the sense of urgency was, was very much there. The head of that lab um, is a really interesting woman. Um, Cassandra Quave actually is her name and she lost her life to a MRSA infection. And so um, the, the sense of urgency is really there for her. She's very aware of what an antibiotic resistant infection can do. Um, and you know, her whole mission comes from her experience. Um, but you know, on the academic side, what you're really gonna be doing is maybe drug discovery, maybe it's characterizing how resistance can happen, but academic labs really cannot take a new discovery through to market. Um, so there's going to be a point where you get limited on the academic end. We'll be right back with Emma D'Agostino. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, I mean, talk about uh, uh, an example where a patient is pushing forward a scientific agenda. I mean, that's, that, that, is, that is certainly one there. Um, and you're right. There is a gap between, uh, you know, therapeutic, you know, development, translation, and commercialization, right? Like it all sort of, these are all sort of different pieces that uh, exist sort of in silos until someone comes along with enough money to put it all together. And you know, that's kind of, um, I think what's a nice segue into talking about the, the market dysfunction sort of at the heart of the antibiotic crisis and the antibiotic issue is that drug companies just, you know, in recent memory and recent history has shown us have not been able to bring new antibiotics to market. And, you know, I remember going back to when we were writing the piece on the Hill, um, 
<laughs> you threw a fact at me that I think I kind of blew my, my head away was that, you know, we're still using the same classes of antibiotics that were developed in the 60s and there haven't been new ones developed since. Can you talk about that? So everyone can, like, we can bring people up to speed and then dive further into this. Yeah, so in the 60s, which is around the time that penicillin, the first antibiotic was discovered, it was a little earlier than that, but that's around the era, there was a huge boom of antibiotic discovery. Um, most, if not all antibiotics that we use today were discovered from bacteria. So bacteria go to war against each other. They have to outcompete each other. And so they make compounds to kill other bacteria. So what we have done is basically uh, commandeer that system. We've gone to bacteria and just found how they kill each other. And that's what antibiotics really are, is compounds from bacteria. But in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, we basically found all of those compounds. And since then, discovery has really dried out. And it's a challenging, antibiotic discovery is challenging to begin with, right? Um, but we don't have any new scaffolds from the 70s, I mean, since the 60s, sorry. Um, meaning that the, the uh, kind of building blocks that we use for anti our antibiotics they are the same as what we were using in the 60s. So we've taken those original building blocks and modified them, um, but we haven't made new ones, which is, yeah, it's, it's crazy. You would think given all of the money that goes into drug development that we would have come up with something new, but we truly have not. Right, so you're saying that there had been new antibiotics approved, mm -hmm. of course, over the last several decades. However, they're not, you know, materially different in two, you know, broad speaking terms than. Yeah. So, what so what we'll see happen is, you know, we'll see an antibiotic from the sixties. Um, the bacteria will learn how to become resistant to it. We'll make a little change so that the bacteria aren't resistant anymore. And then that cycle repeats but we're not seeing a truly new class of antibiotic come out. Right. And, the, and the hope is that if a new class of antibiotics does come along or developed or is, you know, brought into development through research, that would, you know, alleviate some of this concern that we have with antibiotic resistance, because presumably you'd be exposing, a, you know, bacteria to something they just haven't seen before. Exactly. Um, so let's talk about why this is an issue. What's happening? What is creating a problem here? Uh, that is that is getting in the way. It's a fewfold, and it's something that we kind of we talked about um, in, in our in our piece. And it's 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 a it's a little complex. So we're gonna I'll try to talk through it as um, let's put it as, as simply as I can. And I, Emma, fill me in as we go through uh, to see if we can do if we can tag team this. Um, but the truth of the matter is, it all sort of starts with how antibiotics are used and how we think we have to use them, right? So because we have the, this prior knowledge base that um, antibiotics are, that they become weaker over time, we have to put them on the shelf, right? You can't just you know throw every single antibiotic that does work at all these strains of bacteria <clears throat> until previous ones or weaker ones fail, right? So we're practicing what a, what, experts call stewardship, right? We're using them only when they must be used. So if you think about that for a drug developer who wants to enter the antibiotic world, they need to develop a new antibiotic, but our doctors and our you know, public health experts who are rightfully saying 
this antibiotic has to sit on the shelf. We can't use it until people absolutely need it. And, you know, you could make the case that you and I may fall in that scenario where do we really need new antibiotics right now if we're healthy and okay, or do, or would we be able to wait until we got super, super sick? It's a weird ethical dilemma that exists, but for the drug makers whose revenue is uh, tied to volumes of volume of prescriptions, that is, you know, overwhelmingly a negative, right? So, you know, drug makers are often going into the drug development process, sort of making, um, you know, making strides in technological advances, not necessarily on loans, but definitely on, you know, a pre-revenue sort of investment stream, right? So think about, you know, venture capitalists, banks, investors, whatever, putting tons of money into these drug developers with the anticipation that they will be making revenue eventually one day. And then all of a sudden that drug maker gets a drug approved by the FDA and doctors won't prescribe their drug because it needs to sit on the shelf until it needs to, until it can only absolutely be used. Like that's sort of the crux here. That is, that is the overwhelmingly you know, large picture that exists at the heart of this antibiotic dysfunction. Right, it's, it's kind of a worst nightmare scenario for a drug maker to have a drug where you know that even though everyone been, would really love to have it, they also are not going to use it unless it's kind of a worst case scenario where you have an infection that is really antibiotic resistant and you have to use the best kind of shiniest new drug. Right. And to compound the matter, the, the way the drug you know, industry was set up in the United States um, back with the legislation, the Hatch-Waxman sort of law that, that, that uh, you know, codified uh, exclusivity periods for drug makers they're essentially racing against the clock, right? So drug makers, from the time their drug is sort of discovered in the lab and they get it working, they are patenting pretty much every single thing they're doing. The FDA will also, you know, add on different exclusivity rights. Again, this isn't like a legal podcast, so we're not going to walk through all of these nuances, but there's essentially a finite period of time for a drug maker to recoup the, you know, the investment they put into R&D and then make a profit before their drugs go generic. So, Importantly, in the United States, you know, more than 80% of drugs prescribed go generic. So, if, you know, CF, CF listeners out there, people with cystic fibrosis, you know, if you're on a CFTR modulator, you know, today you're taking a branded drug, but, you know, in the not too distant future, you'll be taking a generic CFTR modulator. That's, you know, one way to put it. Or, you know, think about Viagra. That's another sort of, you know, brand name drug that everybody knows. Viagra is like just about to go generic, right? So these uh, drugs have finite, you know, exclusivity periods <clears throat> where, um, the drug maker is trying to get as much revenue as it can before, uh, you know, the free market sort of takes over in this generic, uh, you know, drug market. And, you know, you can, you know, of course it has its critics, but, you know, I sort of think and believe that this has worked in a lot of ways. However, it doesn't really work for antibiotics because drug makers, as we're seeing over the last several years that have actually tried to develop a new antibiotic or new classes of antibiotics have not been able to survive much beyond their, uh, their FDA approval because they're competing uh, with stewardship. And also in hospitals, you know, it was sort of sort of revealed over the last couple of years that Medicare, the largest purchaser of antibiotics, because really um, the Medicare population is, you know, older folks generally are ones who are using antibiotics in, in a greater frequency than, than other people uh, in our population. So because Medicare has like this weird uh, 
reimbursement strategy with the way it seems it sees antibiotics. It also um, reimburses drug makers um, <clears throat> across the board, whether a drug is generic or branded at the same level. So that's kind of a crazy thing too, right? So uh, you would presumably understand that generic drugs would be reimbursed at a lower rate, say $5 compared to $15 for a branded drug. Like that's just a mathematical experiment, you know, sort of example to showcase what it looks like. But that's how Medicare sort of sees uh, antibiotics as equals across the board, regardless of their value. So Emma, I don't know if you want to fill anything in here, but that's, it's a little bit of a complex sort of, uh, economic scenario, but that's really kind of what's happening underneath the waves here. Yeah. So I think just two other things I would add are uh, another general challenge in antibiotics is most drugs, when you prescribe them to a patient, you just got to get to a patient one time, and then they're going to be on a drug for a long time. So like a cholesterol medication, presumably that patient is going to be on the cholesterol medication somewhat permanently, it's a chronic condition. But for an antibiotic, you get to that patient and they're gonna be on an antibiotic for 10 days, 21 days, and then that's it. So because the drug is prescribed for such a short term, the revenue you get from each patient is very limited. So that's another just revenue challenge for the drug maker. Um, and then another piece is antibiotics are one of the only medications where as soon as the drug is approved, you already know that there are bacteria out there in the world that are already resistant to your drug. So you already know that as soon as the antibiotic is made, it doesn't work for some people. And that's just not true for most drugs, right? So even though it's like a new shiny drug, a new, a new antibiotic in our arsenal, it already doesn't work for some people. And, you know, I've seen that play out for myself, we've had a handful of antibiotics approved in our lifetime, and they already haven't worked for me when we've checked. Um, so that's a couple of things. And then I think just finally, from a scientific perspective, uh, of course, all drug discovery is difficult, but we really have found that discovering new antibiotics has been just incredibly challenging. And it's really cool to see the kinds of science that people are doing, like looking for bacteria in hot springs and like the Arctic to see if there's bacteria that we just don't know about that maybe have some, some cool compounds that we haven't seen, but it truly has just been like difficult from a scientific perspective to find new compounds too. So it's just difficult at every level um, and it's made it almost impossible to, to find new antibiotics and we really need new solutions here. The State of Health, we'll be right back. So that being said, there are drug companies that are taking this on, but notably they're actually smaller biotech companies. Um, so I'm gonna use biotech and pharma uh, to my own definition, to some people and to, you know, the, the, the definition between biotechnology and pharma has evolved over the years. But typically speaking, the way I learned it in business school and the way I'm going to use it now, biotech is like what I'm going to consider a commercialized academic lab, right? It's someone is discovering something in an academic lab. They want to commercialize it. They form a little company. That's a biotech company. Pharma, on the other hand, is like a big, giant, multinational company that you know has tons of money behind their R&D arms. They have tons of money in 
clinical trials and clinical development, tons of technical expertise. You know, think about, you know, Pfizer, you know, companies like that. That's what, what I would typically consider to be big pharma. What's interesting about the antibiotic world is that big pharma has, I want to say left the antibiotic world, but they're leaving much of the work to be done by these smaller biotechnology companies. And the smaller biotechnology companies are always craving cash. And the one thing that you learn like in every intro to biotechnology class is that if you want your biotech to be successful, you have to get through what they consider to be the value of death, right? The, the uh, understanding that there is a potential technology that you're translating a academic technology into a therapeutic um, you know, option uh, and getting that drug into a clinical trial. So the time between is such a, you know, a challenging time because you're not making any money. You're searching for investors to believe in your technology. And a lot of antibiotic companies get stuck in that valley of death. So regulators have picked up onto this and they've realized that so many antibiotic companies are failing really before they can even get to the clinic because of the knowledge that no one wants to invest in these companies because when they get to market, they will often fail because their drugs have to sit on the shelf. In fact, I had one visitor at business school my second year, you know, I asked, it was, it was, she was a professional investor um, who invests in biotechnology companies. And I said, why don't you touch antibiotics or what is scaring you about antibiotics? And she said, we would never touch an antibiotic because there's just too much reimbursement risk involved in the product. And to me, I was like, oh my God, this is like terrible. Like that's like the greedy venture capitalist, you know? But at the same time, like she's right. Like if she wants to actually, you know, win and like, you know, identify a technology that will work and be sustained in the market, you know, an antibiotic just doesn't make a lot of sense. So regulators have come up with this um, and come up with a few strategies to figure out how to change this antibiotic dysfunction that exists, not only in the United States, by the way, but really globally as well. It's, it's a problem that exists, uh, you know, in commercialized commercial insurance markets and, you know, public insurance markets or centralized insurance markets. It just exists everywhere. <clears throat> and there's two sort of catchphrases. There's push and pull. Push is when you fund something upfront and with, uh, you know, very few strings attached, you can think about grants or, you know, you know, very, uh, uh, very like good terms to a, an investment deal before something happens. But pull is what um, the other side of this of this uh, investment world is, is is terming, and it's what we talked about in our our Hill uh, article. So pulling is, if you can imagine, it's like an award that you can get as soon as you demonstrate that you are uh, succeeding with your technology. So in the United States, right now, in going through our legislator is something called the Pasteur Act. So named after, I'll leave this to you, who Pasteur was, because I'm not sure I'm quite as uh, familiar as, as, as you certainly sound and seem. But um, Pasteur Act is essentially a Netflix subscription model that would pay for antibiotics um, to sit on the shelf. So you would get an approved novel drug, and based on its value to society, the government would essentially provide or grant a lump sum uh, award to a biotechnology company for getting that drug across the finish line. And what that does is it eliminates the problem of uh, the Medicare reimbursement issue. It eliminates the problem of sparingly using a drug right after it's approved. And it also um, provides an incentive for more drug makers to get involved. Um, and I think that's something that I certainly feel passionate about, and I'm sure you do too, Emma. 
Yes. Um, I am going to be honest, my biology 101 knowledge of who Louis Pasteur was is failing me a little bit, but um, Google is telling me, well, obviously he is responsible for pasteurization, um, but Google is telling me, reminding me that uh, he's responsible for the theory of disproving the theory of spontaneous generation. We used to think that um, life just spontaneously formed and he disproved that theory. Um, so that's who Pasteur was. And now we both remember what I learned, you know, nine years ago in Biology 101. Uh, oh man, that is a big fail on our end. But yeah, no, he's, um, <clears throat> he is, uh, <laughs> hopefully he is not as forgettable as this, <laughs> as this legislation. <laughs> um but yeah no i uh yeah back on topic here let's get this get the trains back on the tracks here listen i think the bottom line is some in this case that we made now emma i'll let you sort of get the last word here that you know in order to to really uh fix a problem that is you know a little bit of an existential crisis for for not only people with cystic fibrosis who have these really troubling infections um and something that is, uh, you know, coming is something that we all know is coming, right? Very different than the coronavirus pandemic that sort of came out of nowhere. It's an issue that people have seen for a long time. It's one that is uh, both economic in nature and also natural in nature that, you know, there's the way we're treating this issue is undervalued, but, you know, for a bacteria, it's a pretty uh, lucrative opportunity. And I think, um, I think we have the tools to, 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 to treat it. But for me, the, my greatest fear is that like the next health crisis is one that uh, won't come out of the blue. It's one that you know we think that we already have the tools to defeat, but those tools may um, may prove to be inadequate. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I think you know it's been promising to see interest on. Um, over the last year in looking ahead to the next pandemic, we've really put investment forward to the next pandemic. And, you know, it's easy when you're in a pandemic to think about the next pandemic and say, we're going to think about the next pandemic, but we really are putting money towards, you know, uh, thinking about vaccines for more viruses beyond coronavirus and therapies for the next, uh, for viruses outside of coronavirus. And so I am optimistic that we can think beyond viruses and think about bacteria too. Um, and, you know, we have an opportunity to, instead of being caught flat-footed the way that we have been for these last two years, to get out ahead. And wouldn't it be so nice when we inevitably have a superbug because we are surrounded by superbugs. We are surrounded by bugs already that are resistant to all of the antibiotics that we have in our arsenal. So wouldn't it be nice when they start really taking over to already say, we did the development, we have the antibiotic, we're good. Um, and we have an opportunity here to get ahead. So I would love to see us, you know, take it. I would too. Well, Emma, thanks for coming on the show today. Um, and thanks for taking me down. Uh, memory related to the history books and uh, hopefully the next time we have you on the show we'll be a little bit better <laughs> with, <laughs> with with recall thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure 
That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at G17Esiason, and you can check out my website at GunnarEsiason.com. The Antibiotic Resistance Series is going to continue over the next couple of episodes. Be sure to tune in. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the State of Health and then leave a rating and a review. A big thank you to Emma D'Agostino for today's interview. State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. We'll see you next week.